Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. You know, we'll scroll through Etsy, and a lot of the stuff is in Germany, and it costs yeah. you know three thousand dollars to ship it to the to to oh, you. Oh, the and, furniture and, I've fallen in love with in Denmark, right? And it's painted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Denmark. Okay. And you think like, can I buy coach tickets? And like, <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out a way around it. <laughs> <laughs> this is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business in the Wall Street Journal. It has been another busy week in the news, and there hasn't been a lot to cheer about. A new report is out saying the fashion industry is falling behind on its pledges to cut emissions. Surprise, surprise. The business model of fast fashion has come for... furniture? Depressing but true, and we'll talk it through. Chloe, this is good news, actually. Chloe is embracing digital IDs as a way to make their supply chains transparent. It's a smart first step toward circularity. There's lots of buzz around caring, acquiring Tom Ford brand, not the guy. Leonardo DiCaprio is investing in vegan shoes, and Ganny is moving to vegan leather. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going good. How are you, Christina? I'm very well, thank you. And the CEO of Thrilling, Shilla Kim Parker, is coming to us, as always, from South Salem, New York. Hey, Shilla. Hey, Christina. I just have to share something with you guys. I came home yesterday. I'd been I'd been away for a couple of weeks and had a big pile of mail, and there was this gigantic box sitting there. And I'm like, what is that? And I open it, and inside is a sustainability report from Prada that they sent me on what's clearly heavy stock but recycled paper. It's about eight and a half by 11. The box that it arrived in was two feet long, no. 16 inches wide, and two and a half inches deep. This is wow. hearkening back to Kim Kardashian's <laughs> sustainable beauty line, which the box was about eight feet long, yeah. 12 feet wow. wide. Did you get your measuring tape out, Christina? I totally did. Here. I, <laughs> she did. Our, listeners, our, listeners, our listeners can't see it, but I'm holding it up so you can see my measuring tape. <laughs> I was just pissed off. I mean... It and could have been an email. Well. Should we and, write Prada? It could have been an email. You know, this. or it could have been an eight and a half by 11 envelope, right? I mean, it, or a nine by 12, whatever, you know? I know it's luxury and they love big boxes and beautiful wrapping, but it just, I thought they're doing so well. The You know, Prada was one of the first people, and they, they even tied their investment strategy and, and their performance mm-hmm. so that if they do better in sustainability, they get lower interest rates on their right, borrowing. The green they, bonds. Yeah, exactly. They did that. I think they were, they're the first luxury brand that I'm aware of that did that. It was, it's been several years now. So I know their hearts are in the right place, but like the, sometimes you just like the, the thinking halts. It's funny. We, we still have an attachment to kind of physical paper products. Like I, I'm still surprised by how many holiday cards, you know, wedding invites. Um, you know, there's just some things that we can't, we can't get unaddicted to paper products. You know, and I wouldn't think those things were such were a problem necessarily, like net net. If we didn't get so much junk mail, I think junk mail should be illegal. Like I'm happy to get a wedding invitation. I'm not happy to get coupons from a company I've never heard of filling it's my unbelievable. Mailbox, you know, eighty percent of my mail is junk mail. Just goes straight to recycling. We're having, you know, I don't know. If this is happening to you guys, but in LA, 
big election coming up in a few days. And I've been saving all of the flyers that we get from the candidates so I can go through them and sort of study them before I fill out my ballot. And the stack is like three inches thick at this point. Just so many of those things stuffed in your mailbox. It's a lot of paper. So, um, guys, it is the 27th Conference of Parties. That's what COP27, if you're hearing those acronyms being thrown around. That's the UN's Climate Change Conference. It's happening now. And while dignitaries hash out language around holding countries accountable to their pledges, the fashion industry just keeps emitting and emitting and emitting. A recent report from Stand Earth makes clear what we've all been thinking, that despite lots of promises, emissions from the fashion industry have kept on rising. The report looked at 10 companies, including American Eagle and The Gap, carrying Lululemon, Levi's, H&M, and others, and only Levi's was able to meet the goal of reducing its supply chain emissions by 55% compared with 2018 levels. By the way, hats off to Levi's. At least it shows that it's possible. I'm glad there was one, but it's kind of a bummer about the others. Rachel, you're our expert here. Why is this so hard? Well, first of all, we can back up a little bit because the good news is that from what I've read, all the brands assessed have met uh, or at least set 100% of their renewable energy goals in scope one and two for their stores and warehouses. Those are, those are their owned resources. And scope one or two, tell us again, we always need to be reminded, what's that? So scope one and two are the parts of the supply chain that the brands actually own or have a lot of control over, generally stores, warehouses, things that are a little closer to home. Now, the the complication with scope three emissions is twofold. A, it's the majority of the fashion industry's emissions come from scope three. It's textile production, where the things are made, and it's someone else's factory, so it's not owned. And generally, overall, by and large, it's in countries that are still running on coal. It's a geopolitical issue. It is something that is going to take a lot of money and thought and negotiations, both political and business, to be solved for. Not saying that we shouldn't put a lot of effort into it, but it is, it's the majority of the emissions that we have in the fashion industry takes place there. And it's not necessarily on the soil where the brands are owned and operate their primary sort of front-facing. It's it's not where they're headquartered necessarily. And so so they can't make the decision. They have to persuade somebody else to make the decision. They can't say, China, you have to transfer from coal to renewable energy right now. Right. How's that going to go? And are they willing to invest? How are they approaching their suppliers? Because here's the thing, too. Like, it costs their suppliers money to change their infrastructure, like their boilers, from one thing to another, whether it's from coal to electricity or electricity to renewable, that costs them money. Who's paying for that? Are the brands paying for that? That's why we talk about Apparel Impact Institute's Climate Fund a lot, because what they're trying to do is raise creative green financing for that so brands can work with their suppliers to transition. The other challenge I feel like fashion industry has to deal with, you know the journalist and host Kai Ristall? Mm -hmm. He was on one of Kara Swisher's podcasts recently, and he was quoting Adam Smith recently. Mm. And he said, uh, and he reminded me of Adam Smith's quote, which says, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. In addition to the challenges around decarbonizing fashion supply chain, the problem is that fashion's business models are entirely dependent on increasing consumption and therefore increasing production. And so... Endlessly. Right. And so I think that is obviously a contributing factor here as well. Well, it, it is almost 
existentially, right? But it wouldn't be if consumption were regenerative. And I'm not one of those people, you know me, I'm not one of those people who's like, that. that's going to happen in our lifetime. You know what I mean? But it's true. Like It's not consumption isn't necessarily the problem. It's how we produce. And so the carbon emissions right now at this point in time, in this time we're living in, that's the big one. So we need policies and investment in these in these so-called scope third or other people's factories. I'm going to think of it as other people's factories. The scope three is hard to keep track of. So do we want to invite Levi's on to tell us how they did sure. it? Levi's, if you're listening, we want to talk to you. Next, we want to talk about something. This came as a surprise to me when I started reading about it a few weeks ago. Um, actually, somebody that I follow on Twitter started writing about this. We're going to talk about furniture. I know this is a fashion podcast, but fashion and design is a little bit bigger than just clothing. A recent article in the New York Times caught our eye. It wasn't in the style section. It goes like this. During the pandemic, people bought a lot of furniture. We all redecorated our living rooms, right? Or put in a new home office. A lot of it was from cheap places like Wayfair. So cheap that a lot of it is being treated as disposable and threatens to end up in landfills. How familiar is this, people? Just as we're looking at ways to reduce waste and embrace circularity. This makes my heart hurt. How did you guys all react to this? Now we have fast furniture. This is a hill I, I, I die on. I, I talk about, I rant about fast furniture all I mean, I... Hate fast furniture, and I also consume it, and I have such a conflicted relationship with it. Mainly because I've moved like 50 million times in the past 10 years. And as a single person who's on a budget, who's always renting, who's in a three-floor walk-up right now, it's very hard to justify investing in not fast furniture because, A, I don't know if it's going to fit through my door. I want it in boxes that I can assemble. It needs to be easy to assemble. It needs to be something that, should I need to return it, I can physically do it. Here's an example. I generally try to buy used things on Amazon if I buy on Amazon. So I bought this dual monitor stand. And my brother came over to help me set it up because I opened the box and all of the pieces and parts were no longer labeled. And I was almost in tears. I mean, there there were like 200 parts. And and he's like, let, let me handle it because he's a tech guy. He comes over, gets it almost finished, and it's missing one key piece. I had to put it back in the box, carry it three blocks away to, fortunately, I have a Staples nearby where I can drop it off so it chips to UPS. But like, God forbid that be any heavier, that it wouldn't be worth the Uber it would cost me to return it. And if you translate that to furniture, it, it leads to fast furniture almost more than it leads to fast fashion. Because fashion, you can return. You don't have to worry about carrying it up or down your stairs. You don't have to worry about putting it together. So like we've got a big problem with the furniture industry. So fast furniture is a solution for you because it's generally lighter? Mm -hmm. And I can put it together myself and take it apart myself and perhaps return it more easily than like a huge armoire that's like 200 pounds that I don't know if I could, I might not be able to get that through my door. Yeah, it was wild reading that piece in the New York Times. It's things that we talk about constantly, you know, this culture of things are mass-produced and lower quality and therefore cheaper and leading to this culture of consumption and disposal. Um, and a lot of the furniture pieces are not biodegradable because they're incorporating a lot of plastics and um, majority ending up in landfills. Like, it's it's wild. It's exact. I mean, it's on an exact parallel path. Um, and it's a massive industry. I think $27 billion today and uh, projected to be $40 billion by 2030. 
And I, I guess my concern too, when I think about these things is I don't think like my actions necessarily, like I should maybe pay more for this, but I wish the producers were more considerate. Like furniture can be, you can take it apart, you can break it down, it can be lighter. It could be fast furniture, a little cheaper, but it's exactly what you named. Maybe the materials need to be biodegradable or like I have this PAX wardrobe that I'm upset about that's Ikea. The infrastructure of it or the out, outside of it could last for decades. But the drawers, like all of Ikea drawers, are falling apart with like 10. And and it, and Ikea has a 20, 30 circularity target and their drawers fall apart with three pairs of jeans in them. Like that's so, that should not be allowed. It's such a common problem where I agree with you completely. The dressers, the design, even like, you know, it's all actually pr- pretty nice. And um, and it's it all falls apart with the drawers. I'm very sorry to hear that you say that because I literally... Three weeks ago, brought a, bought a Pax wardrobe from my mother-in-law's apartment. <laughs> now I'm hearing it's going to fall apart. Ugh. It's just at the bottom, and I'm sure that there, if you, I think if you, I'm sure if you Google, there's all sorts of fixes and hacks that people have come up with to, to, to reinforce the bottom of the drawers that are very, very flimsy. It's like parchment paper compared to the rest. It's like this great structure. It's sitting right next to me. It's a great structure. And then they have parchment paper for the bottom of the drawers. And I tweeted at them last week and they wrote me back and they said, bring them back. They said, bring them back and then we'll fix them. And I said, no, you can't fix them. It's your design problem. <laughs> I'm amazed that they responded. Oh, they will if you tweeted them. You know, it's funny. <laughs> well, let the, let, the, let the listeners know that, <laughs> that Rachel sort of winked at the at the Zoom, as she I did said wink that, at the if Zoom. you tweet them. <laughs> your eyebrows just now. Are those real eyebrows? These are my real eyebrows, but I, with the help of makeup. <laughs> We've ordered furniture from Wayfair, and what they'll do, and I, 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 I said this on a uh, pod, I think, months ago, but there was some issue with something that came, and we were expecting to have to take it apart and ship it back, and they said, we'll just send you another right. one. And that, to me, is, wow, what a massive... I mean, that reveals so much waste, such a problem in the fundamental business model. It makes more sense economically for them to send me an entirely new, I think it was like an outdoor patio set. Um, <laughs> the whole versus thing. The whole thing versus them taking it back and, and having to deal with the returns and the shipping, et cetera. So it's, it's a massive problem. You know, this is making me realize I, didn't, I was part of, or my family has been part of the fast furniture problem. I didn't even realize that we, um, and I just mentioned that I just bought a PAX wardrobe for my mother-in-law. I bought that because she moved last May from Manhattan um, out to Los Angeles. And when I was coordinating the move with her, she had moved in New York. She was living in an apartment for two years. She, uh, she had moved there from an apartment they'd had for 30 years. And she got a lot of new furniture very inexpensively, most of it from Wayfair for that second apartment. And when the movers came in to bring her long distance all the way to LA, they refused to move the Wayfair stuff. They said it's not going to survive. Mm-hmm. It's just going to fall apart and break. They won't be responsible. They would have moved it if we paid them, but they wouldn't be responsible for anything that happened. They said it's not worth it. It's not going to arrive well. What did you do? Well, she left it. She got somebody in the apartment building. They were like, okay, we'll like dispose of it somehow for you. And she came here and we bought all new furniture. That's wild. Such a waste. And I guess I go back to that, like it's not necessarily a consumption problem, but it's a um, the way things are produced problem. Like if you're planning on something to be disposable, essentially, then it should be 
disposable. It should be compostable. The material should be very considered that go into it, you know? Because I don't, people are moving to cities. They don't have cars and transportation. They need, they have all those problems that I listed. I completely agree with you, Rachel. But I also think that it is a consumption problem because I think in general, people are getting used to the idea of buying into trends and buying more than they need. And if they don't like something, when they don't, when they get tired of something a year later, being able to just get rid of it and get a new one. Um, and I do think that that culture of overconsumption has permeated. And I do, and I, and I don't think that no matter, I mean, it's very unlikely that we'll ever come up with production processes that are completely neutral in the environment. Um, and so I do think that grappling with our culture of overconsumption is going to have to be part of the solution. 100%. Just do we really need that or buy better? I mean, I found, depending on where you live, when we had, I don't know if you guys remember, but several months ago, I was furnishing a house in New Orleans that we bought for um, our daughter who was going to college there. And we just, we had so much fun in the secondhand stores all over and even some small cities outside of New Orleans. And it's entirely furnished in used stuff, except for the bed frames. Um, that was super fun. And that stuff is, I mean, frankly, I covet some of it. It's like I wanted that in my place in LA. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, the furniture the furniture is a uniquely cha- challenging problem because of the weight and because of the shipping issues. I mean, I feel like we love shopping secondhand mm-hmm. and vintage furniture. And then even if it's close by, like we'll look at, we look at auction sites too. And, and we'll look at um, auctions that are happening, um, you know, within 50 miles from us. But still, you have to, Rachel, to your point, like, for us, I think about, okay, we're going to, we'll probably have to rent a truck. And um, we probably need an extra pair of hands. And, and that's, that's just all, all of that. That's a lot and, and probably unreasonable to, for, for most people to kind of afford and figure out logistically. Yeah. And I also think there's, we're going through a lot of changes as a culture. And I I see it just like, I can only reference myself, but I know a lot of people feel this way where it's like, you can't afford a home, but you hope you will be able to. You're kind of waiting for that moment in your career when you're when you can do do that. And so I haven't wanted to invest in furniture because I feel that maybe next year I will be able to buy, have my forever stuff. And I don't know what the former function of that would need to be. And so I've seen people for decades sort of just not invest in furniture or hoping that to eventually buy a home. So I think there's a lot that goes into play almost more than clothes and more than apparel. Oh, 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 Rachel. That's so sad what you just said. I know it Wait, is. I mean, it is a little, but, yeah. Okay, I'm going to pull. But that's so true. That I feel like that's true for most, for a lot of people. I'm, in I'm be- 41. I always thought I would have a house by now and I'm not, probably not going to own a house maybe in my lifetime. I don't, I don't think so. Like I, maybe I will. Um, so actually I've started to think more about this, just thinking about what are those pieces that even if I do own a house in my lifetime, what are those pieces that could fit here in my apartment, which I love. I'm very lucky to have. I live in Brooklyn. It's not a sob story, but it's just where things are. And what are those pieces? uh, What's that mix of pieces I want forever and we'll be able to go everywhere? It's not going to be a sofa. No, those wear out. You know what I mean? It might be like drawers. Do you, how do you guys feel about the rental trend, furniture rental? Like, would you ever consider that? I wouldn't, but I apparently have a completely different perspective on furniture buying than you guys. And I'm not quite old enough to be your mom, Rachel, but I'm going to pull a mom here and just say that, you know, your lifetime is additive. Everything you collect along the way, that's what's going to be in the home you buy. It's not that you buy a home and then you suddenly furnish it completely with all of your dream stuff. You're going to be dragging along 
I mean, I have a desk downstairs that I bought in college from somebody in Bloomington, Indiana, off of a porch that some lady was she was selling the desk. I don't. It's not my business to give you advice. No, I but, love this mom oh. advice. I love this mom advice. I've <laughs> actually too. My mom, my mom would have said, I mean, R.I.P. She would have said the exact same thing. Although she was always trying to give us her stuff, and none of it would fit in our apartments. <laughs> like, yeah, we have a dining room table for you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what? Yes, exactly. <laughs> We have to squeeze that into the bathroom. This is a this is a New York, a particular like New York City problem. It's so many totally. spaces, yeah, particularly New York. Yeah, Christina, you should have a like a we should have a call in line for elder millennials and like and yeah, like, <laughs> I'll give them advice. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not quite mom yet, but. <laughs> My kids would be rolling their eyes right well, now. That's why you <laughs> so need funny. it so you can have like active listeners because your kids are, you know, kids are like not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you need someone to take that wisdom and appreciate it. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's so funny. Okay. That's discouraging, fast furniture. But there's some good news. Something very interesting this week was um, came out around circularity. Chloe, the French fashion brand, is embracing digital IDs as a way to better illustrate where materials are sourced and include that in labeling and other disclosures. Beyond compliance and branding, this should help with resale because consumers can know everything about a product as a first-time or a pre-owned buyer. Rachel, you were quoted in the article in Vogue Business. How excited should we be about this? You know, I don't even think it's it's exciting, I guess, but it's also just, I think it's going to be the norm. We need to think of creative ways to update labeling. We've talked about labeling in this show before, um, how it's really antiquated, the labels we currently have on our apparel. It's so antiquated and it just doesn't serve any of our purposes of transparency and circularity and interaction that you're kind of missing out with the customers. Um, so in terms of like, I think it's just going to happen and and things that are novel generally start in luxury um, and then trickle down to the rest of the folks. If only because of price point, it, with scale, it becomes more accessible to have things like digital d- IDs in products. Wouldn't it be great if you could scan your purse or your shoes and know where a trusted repair service would be for that particular item? And then you go down the line and you like for a sorting facility or a recycling facility, they could know what was went into that so they can do something with it. Or even know more about what the materials are so you can tell your dry cleaner. Right. Yeah. Or you can resell it even more easily. Right. Right. Yeah. So many exactly. applications. I just, you know, I want to give a shout out here to Gabriella Hurst, who is the designer of Chloe. She's designed other brands in the past, and um, she has her own label, Gabriella Hurst, which she started seven years ago or so now. And and she always had an a, an intention to be more sustainable with Gabriella Hurst. I mean, even in her first collections, she did women's shoes that had the welting so that the soles were um, double or triple welted, sewed to the upper the way men's good men's shoes are, like Alden shoes, so you can actually resole them. She was doing that with with women's shoes. It's like unheard of for women's shoes to be able to do that. And so when she went over to Chloe three years ago, the pandemic plays with my time, but she has just quietly started implementing a lot of this stuff. She's not super showy about it. Stella McCartney is a brand, as we all know, 
um, and a designer who's been super showy about it. And you know, she's vegan. We can, you know, I don't. I think none of us are fans of vegan, you know, plastic clothing. So oil um, spill vegan. Oil spill. Is that, is that what we're calling it now? I, th- I believe you once said. You have to explain like, how yeah, that you came You have to up explain though. that. What does that mean? I got a big mouth is part of it. <laughs> uh, oil spill vegan is it's the it's going to be in the urban dictionary tomorrow after people get a hold of this. But um it's oil spill vegan is the propensity for vegans to voraciously consume anything that's not vegan including purely fossil fuel based products like plastic shoes and plastic accessories. Without putting the logic together, that material perhaps kills more animals than leather. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Yeah, well said. So you've got, I mean, and I, I don't want to take away, Stella McCartney has been doing some really good things and pressing for, for more sustainable fashion and for a long time. But I like the way Gabriella Hurst has been doing it quietly. You know, it's like, and, you know, she, she just moved into Chloe, which is a French luxury brand and had, you know, no particular footprint in your discussion of sustainability. And she just quietly started doing things like this, which most consumers would probably, their eyes would glaze over when they saw the announcement of this, right? It's not not a a flashy luxury. No, not at all. But I think it's going to be great for the brand because people will start to notice that. And they'll love the product. Yeah. And Chloe's largely a handbag brand, right? It's an accessories. I mean, they sell ready to wear, but their profits are driven by accessories. So where where longevity is really important in luxury and understanding where those materials are. So, yeah, it, Rachel, isn't there a proposal in the EU for for most consumer products to have a digital pro- passport? That's exciting. Yeah, there, it's part of their suggested circularity and sustainability design requirements. I believe it's not just for apparel. I think it might be for all products. Do you think it's actually going to happen? Yeah, I do. It's not like one of these UN things that gets banned no, around for four it's, years. No, it's because it's the European Commission. It's not the UN. So they can make the decision. Well, the European Commission is putting out, basically, it's not just a recommendation. I think it's like a mandate to all member states to have design for uh, circularity and sustainability requirements. And it's part of, like, I think it's almost sort of part of their energy. Like, it's looped into almost a, as though you had, like, energy star regulations. Is there, is like, there a date that that's going to ha- take place? I think there's a lot to go to make the decisions because there's a lot in that, those design for sustainability and circularity recommendations. And I think that they'll have to phase each recommendation and figure out how they'll accomplish a lot of them. So different points of that will be faster than others. I'm just thinking also, I'm thinking of other brands that are sort of, I mean, we've always sort of assumed, oh, it's a luxury brand. It's making things to last forever which is not always the case. I've had plenty of luxury goods fall apart, including a pair of Stella McCartney vegan sandals. But take a Veneta. Don't they have some kind of a certificate? It's like a lifetime warranty forever and ever, right? Yeah, I think they either just announced that or, or maybe they've always had it. But I think that I thought that they just announced that you get a physical card of purchase or authenticity. And, and if, as long as you have that card, I mean, I think it should be digital eventually. But as long as you have this physical card... It's a physical and digital card that they mentioned. So I think that ties in really well to like, we're seeing the early sort of, this could be a digital ID. Right, right. Right? Um, that um, that allows can... the bags to be repaired or refurbished at their stores only, I think for the life See, of See, I think good. that's amazing. That is amazing. 
I mean, you kind of you kind of assume it <clears throat> if you buy a Bottega bag that they would stand up to you know to a lot of use and that the brand would back it up. But to come out and actually say that and not sort of have it be an, a verbal promise. I like how it's refurbished too. It's not. It's so so if you have it for twelve years and it's not broken, but you just want it to look new again, you can bring it back there and have them shine it up. You know how great shoes look when you get them repaired. Okay, but we have to get back to vegan shoes because guess who's doing vegan shoes? Leo. So this brand Lochi, I don't know how you pronounce it. Lochi, L O C I, just raised four and a half million dollars of seed round funding, including from investors, including Leo DiCaprio. Um, Did you guys take a look at their shoes? Yeah. What you what what did you guys think? Unnecessary. Unnecessary. Okay. Yeah. Let's tell tell us more, Rachel. I just think it's they're made of used ocean plastics, which we've talked about. I don't know if that's helpful. And then they mention renewable and biodegradable materials also. So they have cork midsoles. That's been done before a lot. Each pair of sneakers is 20 plastic bottles. I don't think that's a good thing. Wait, but can you can you say really briefly why it's not a good thing just for folks who maybe didn't hear, catch that episode? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, whenever you're using ocean plastic waste, A, we can't be certain that it wasn't plastic that just wasn't pushed into the ocean and then pulled back out. Unfortunately, that's something that happens. Also taking plastic waste from the ocean is not um, a solution because it really doesn't clean up the ocean at the scale that would need to be. You can't clean up the ocean. Most plastic ends up at the bottom. And B, once a plastic goes into a textile, it can't be recycled again, especially in footwear. It's very challenging because you have to take it apart and we just don't have that technology yet. Whereas if a plastic bottle stays a plastic bottle, it can be recycled ostensibly over and over or more times than it would in textiles. I'm just a little disappointed because I've been waiting for his first big investment. Maybe he's had others, but this is the most notable one I've seen because I know he indicated he was investing in this space. And I thought it would be really innovative because he's done a lot of great work in investing and putting a lot of time into the environment. And I would like to see something a little bit more forward. And I just didn't think the shoes were something they added more to the conversation in terms of style, sustainability, any of that. The vegan market, though, is a smart business move. He'll make money. That And this is VC investing, so. Right. That makes sense. He, I think it was last year he invested in a company that makes lab-grown leather called Vitro Labs. And that was a big round. They did a $46 million Series A. Was that more of the mushroom leather or something else? Or what kind of cells are they growing? I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know the details about it, but it. But it's it's interesting. I mean, I think ultimately this just goes to show that he needs Rachel Kibbe as an advisor. Leo, call me. We will set up a reuse, <laughs> repair, recycling Leo, supply chain. Yeah. We will. You know, that's actually Rachel. Out. That's like the central lesson I've taken from you in in our conversations over the past months is that so often, like obviously Leo did, we forget that last part of the equation. Like, how? What do you do? at the end of life of whatever you've bought. So yes, it's a lovely piece and it uses recycled this or that or whatever, but then what happens? And we so often don't think about that. And what are the ancillary consequences of using what you think might be more sustainable? Last thing we're going to touch base on. I have a hot button. I shouldn't go first. Who's got a hot button? You said you had one. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'll talk about my hot button then. I'm in mourning I've been mourning, and I've, for the last week, watching what's happening with Twitter and realizing that, like, I have, I hesitate to call them friendships, fellowships, relationships. I have a community on Twitter of people I've never met, but I've now known them for years, and I turn to them for advice and information and enjoyment, and 
I'm realizing that, or I, I started to realize last week, like what would happen? Like my life, I would really miss them. I would miss that community. And what am I going to do next? And then I started hearing people talking about Mastodon. And so I, um, which is a sort of, I can't really describe it. I'm sure you guys could probably do a better job if you looked into this, but it's like, there's this thing called the Federation (laughs) and it's decentralized. I think of it like the NPR or the public television of um, social media. So it's a nonprofit organization. There are servers all over the world in all kinds of languages. You can follow people and develop followers and um, move from server to server. If you don't like one server, you can go to another one. So you're not stuck. You know, if Elon Musk takes over your server, you can move to another one and um, and not lose all your followers and the people that you follow. I went over there and started experimenting with it in the last few days. And it's such a gentle place. I never anticipated that social media could just be filled with these smart, interesting people who are so careful. I don't know if it's going to last that way, but right now, Mastodon is a very pleasant place. By the way, there's an exodus from Twitter. So like a lot of these people that I really like on Twitter are moving to Mastodon. We're finding each other. So it's a sort of an experience that I haven't ever anticipated having. So I'm in mourning over Twitter, but I'm celebrating this, this new thing where I have like 29 followers. <laughs> Let me ask you this though. I mean, because I saw I, I saw your tweet about Macedon and I've never heard of it. So I looked and then I started thinking, I was like, but is this just dividing everybody more? Like if one type of person stays on Twitter and takes over and then another person goes to Mastodon, are we just becoming more divided? Well, maybe we're just becoming as divided as we've always been. We've always been divided by our neighborhoods and our schools and, you know, where we shop. Yeah. Social media sort of put us in each other's faces. But I don't know that that's going to be the case when, you know, the what's being reported now is this massive migration over to Mastodon. And you can, there's, Mastodon's been around for years. And so there are all these old timers that are like, oh my God, is this good or is it bad? You know, they're like freaking out a little. And they keep posting reminders, like, this is a nice place. This is a kind place. And if somebody trolls you, this is how we deal with it on Mastodon, right? But they seem to have thought, it's not as smooth or fast as easy. The, the technology is a little quirky, I think. And I think maybe a lot of the servers are overwhelmed because they weren't built for having so many people. I feel like they do have, I'm still learning it and I can't defend it. Are you going to go off Twitter? Well, uh, I mean, I'm prepared to do that. Yeah. I'm not right now. What I've, I've got things set up so that if I send a tweet, it also posts to Mastodon. Oh, the replies oh interesting. I'm going to try yeah. this. And I'm spending time on Mastodon, like, trying to find people that I really care about. And, and you, you use your real name? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, professionally, I like I don't want to be an honest. No, but, I mean, d- does everyone use their real name? Everybody that I've found, I don't know if that's true for, well, I don't know. No, I think it's a little bit. There are people with, like, goofy handles. That's interesting. I mean, I don't think Twitter is necessarily dead. Mm-mm. Like, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't like Elon Musk. I don't know if it's necessarily dead. I feel like I'm a little bit kind of wait and see what he does with it. And who knows? You know, I think it'll hopefully will continue to persist. I think most people, I mean, obviously Twitter has its challenges, but I think most people do feel invested with Twitter. And I feel like it's been, it's a flashpoint in the culture right now because everyone has a relationship to Twitter or a lot of people have a relationship to Twitter. Um, and it's not um, all negative. So, but I, but you've made me curious about Macedon. I was not going to check it out until, until you just started talking about it. And I'm now I'm really, intrigued. Well, you know, it's funny thing is uh, two people that, that I follow, Joanna Stern, who's the Wall Street Journal's technology columnist, who's a really lively, fun, creative person. 
And she just wrote a column about how she's going to pay for the blue check, which, by the way, I'm not going to pay $8 a month or anything for my blue check. I feel like if people can buy it, it's not worth it. So why would I waste my money? So I guess I haven't looked today. Did he take away my blue check? He might have. But Joanna was like, so she's all in. She's going to pay for her blue check. And then yesterday, she tweets and posts on Mastodon. She's like, I can't believe how quickly I went from what's Mastodon to I think I should start my own Mastodon server. Because that's one of the things you can do. You can start a server that sort of hosts people who are interested in similar things. So um, there's like lawyer servers and Denmark servers. There's a server for people of Scottish heritage. Oh, I love that. And you don't have to just live in those, but it means it sort of helps you meet that community, and then you can also go outside of the community. Fascinating. I think that's what they mean by— The new metaverse. Are we going to have a hot-button server? (laughs) For a hot-button server, yeah. (laughs) Somebody would have to moderate it. I can't imagine ever wanting to take on that that job, but— Rachel, what's your hot-button? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I said them all. It was, it was the, you know, I complained a lot this episode of everything from my Ikea drawers falling apart to oil spill shoes. Yeah. Oil spill shoes to missing parts in my Amazon shipment. I mean, where does it end? I feel like I, I, I'll spare you. I have a, I have a positive. I went to see my first Broadway play last week. Oh, nice. Which one? I've lived in New York for 15 years and it's been my embarrassment. To admit that I've never seen a Broadway play, so I saw I saw a Strange Loop, which I recommend that anyone go see. I think the screenplay won a Pulitzer Prize and they won uh, a Tony. It's gonna have its last run in January, so go go see it if you can before before it ends. It was too it was lovely. I just loved it. Sheila, how about you? What's your hot button? Mine is um, tomorrow is election day, but from when we're recording it, and uh, we uh, I want everyone to vote. Um, yes, and and I think that can be if you've never voted or if you've moved and it feels like it's a little complicated or logistics. Honestly, if you Google where you live and just say how do I vote in whatever state or city that you're in. The information is now so nicely laid out. It's really easy to follow. And I really just encourage everyone to vote. Please that's vote. My, that's my hot button. That's a good one. That's a really good one. There's this there's this hilarious TikTok account called um, Roe v. Bros um, that I just <laughs> saw last night. And all it is is this woman going up to men on the street and asking them questions about women's reproductive organs and 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 how everything works and and so a couple of her questions have been can women pee if they have a tampon in <laughs> oh um, my god question, that I was one question that. and another and another question was you know how many tampons and on average do women go through in a period oh like when they sent that woman to space with like 800 tampons the answers are so hilarious and it's you know it's obviously you know advocating that men should not <laughs> be in charge of making um decisions um around our healthcare but uh <laughs> it's hilarious what does it say it again roe v bros yep i have to roe find that v bros you're good at coming up with fun t- you like you oh. you you enliven <laughs> Sheila, you enliven our slack Sheila routinely finds the with best like of things the you find without fail every day that fifth grader tweet you were like on it the fi- the the fifth grader the line? the kindergartners the ki- with, oh, sorry, the, kindergarten. with the Okay, I listened. I called the kindergarten. I listened to all of them. Hotline this morning, and I started crying. Like I was I did so too, Rachel. touched. There were tears. I did too. I did too. Just tears straight. I was like, "Oh my god, I needed to hear that." 
this, so this was a this was like a public project just so to explain what we're talking about where kindergartners taped uplifting messages to people and you called and it was automated so it was not you're not talking live to a kindergartner but you you can call i think still now yeah um we'll put it in our episodes notes um and listen to an uplifting message so it says you know press one if you're mad and depressed and the, <laughs> and the message will say something like if you're nervous go get your wallet and spend it on ice cream and shoes <laughs> Ice cream and shoes. Get your go. Get your so good. <laughs> oh my god! It made me want to shrink my kids and make them that that little and cute oh, and so real cute. again. That is cute. All right, that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at HotButtonsPod and now on Instagram at HotButtons.Pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple and Spotify and give us a rating. That really helps us when you do that. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to HotButtons at PostscriptAudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our call-in line, 508 622 Five three six one. Give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shola Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Frank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Mezzi-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next week. Leo DiCaprio? Yeah. Forever 24? Oh. 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 She said it. That was spicy from Rachel. Oh, my. (laughs) Forever 24. (laughs) Anyway, so on to his impact investing.